0: Feel like I hold your head up high till you find the blue bird of happiness you will find greater peace of mind knowing there's a bluebird of happiness and Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club In each episode of this podcast I look at a work of Philip K. Dick Or in the case of the novels I look at it bit by bit, chapter by chapter Uh, Currently I am examining Dick's 1962 novel, the Hugo Award winning novel The Man in the High Castle So I introduced this book in the previous episode so I don't want to cover that again but needless to say Needless to say, this is a major, big turning point in Dick's career. Not only did it win him this the, the Hugo Award, but it really opened up uh, a period where he really committed to writing science fiction, and he would write that uh, write some of his greatest novels over the next seven, eight years. or are fifteen of them into between nineteen sixty two and nineteen seventy. And um, I'll be covering all of those books in the upcoming weeks. But right now, we need to make progress in my review and my comments on The Man in the High Castle. If the last episode is any any um, barometer for how this is going to go, it's going to go slow. I, I took almost an hour to look at just two chapters. Of course, I also introduced the book a little bit and, and talked a little bit in the introduction about this uh, transition in Dick's career. But still, um, this is the kind of book where you can't just do a real plot analysis because there's not much of a plot in the book. But what you really need to do is, is examine it, almost line by line, scene by scene, and actually examine what Dick is trying to say in each character interaction, in each uh, theme, in each event is significant. Now, overall, the theme of, of this book, which is really interconnected stories of different characters doing different things in a world in which the Nazis and the Japanese won the Second World War, where the Axis won the Second World War, and the United States is occupied partly by the Japanese and partly by the Nazis, Now, the set mostly in the East Coast and in Colorado, although events around the world are discussed by different characters. So in this context, we have all these characters really exploring the theme of what is true, right? This is not a new theme for Philip Dick. He looked at it in novels like The Cosmic Puppet and Eye in the Sky, but there, there's an explanation. There, there's a reason things aren't what we expect. And even some of the stories he's written up at this point where he plays with reality, it's always for a purpose or usually for a purpose. In Man in the High Castle, we're just dealing with kind of the banality of fakery. The whole world could be fake. We could be living in a world that's not real. Uh, but even within the world, even if we ignore that kind of meta-analysis, we have all kinds of fake things all around us. Fake artifacts, fake Jews, fake swedes fake non-jews i should say we have people darkening their skin to be fake japanese Uh, we have japanese using chinese philosophy kind of becoming fake chinese philosophers so we have all these different layers of kind of the 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 dilemma between perception and reality where our perception is always failing us and in a way you can almost argue that dick goes too far in making everything fake and by not having a purpose to it it becomes a bit irritating if you want to read these works with any kind of political clout i i find this a work that sometimes people can kind of throw onto it what they want and, and that way I, that's something i don't like in science fiction it's one of the reasons i don't like 1984 so much is because so many people can just throw onto orwell's dystopia whatever they don't like you know whether they don't like communism or they don't like capitalism or they don't like fascism they, they just kind of throw it onto that and then since not really understand what Orwell is trying to say The Man in the High Castle I think falls into that a little bit and I think the reason for that is because he goes a little bit too far with this theme of of just everything being fake or we really can't know what's true Um, because when you peel back the layers of reality there's no way of getting at the truth and there's going to be a discussion pertaining to this in the part of the uh, part of the book that I'm going to look at today. So my plan in this episode is to look at chapters three, four, and five of The Man in the High Castle. If you haven't read this book or you haven't, you know, or you weren't didn't listen to the previous episode. I urge you to do that to listen to what happens in the first two chapters. Um, there's really not that much that happens. Essentially, we meet an antique shop owner who is trying to find an artifact for a Japanese uh, general or a high-ranking government official who wants to use it as a gift. He can't find what he promised him, so he has to find something else. He brings some relics he found to to meet that Japanese leader um, we also meet a, a jew who has fled the east coast after the nazi occupation and is living in san francisco in poverty in a working class job but he just got fired and now he doesn't know what to do with his life and he very much resents the japanese occupation the antique store owner children is much more open to it and he works within the japanese occupation he found actually his way to make antiques popular and profitable was to market them to to the japanese so he kind of has a happier experience in the occupation than does frank who resents and is bitter about the situation he's in he's also bitter about losing his wife juliana who will meet shortly and that's pretty all that happens in the story and just bear in mind i took about almost an hour to talk about those two chapters in the last episode which just shows you how thematically dense The man in the high castle is and how rich it can be i'm going to try to be a little bit quicker in the future episodes because i don't want to spend seven eight episodes talking about this one novel um because i do want to get through part of my goal here is to get through philip kiddick's work before you know the end of time so i am going to try to be a little bit quicker but um in, in, in that interest i kind of wrote down a little bit more systematic notes here so i'm just going to pick up with chapter chapter three of the man in the High castle if you're reading along now, we meet someone who was mentioned earlier, uh, Juliana Frank. This is Frank, Frank's wife. Um, and she is living in Colorado at the time. And she has a job. And after work, she's taking a shower. Well, she went to the gym, the place called Ray's Gym. So she's working out. And she's actually quite good at kind of martial arts a little bit she learned something from the Japanese and this helped her survive the Japanese occupation and that's referred to a little bit in her conversation with other people and someone asked her like you were out west how was that and she comments that you know you had to you know you kind of have to protect yourself when you're out there Um, now things seem to be a little bit better when we look at from the perspective of children and others but there does seem to be a a layer of violence in the world that Juliana's character allows us to have access to. And I think that's an interesting conceit by Philip Dick that it's usually the women who are aware of the violence just hovering under the surface of a system that from a male gaze may not seem particularly violent to them. Although it's, it's just kind of hinted at at this part of the story. So she she's taking a shower because before she wants to basically go home after working out in the gym. She considers suicide at this point, and we see an example here, one of many, of how Japanese aesthetics, Japanese philosophy, the kind of the East Asian way of looking at the world, has infiltrated the people living in the western part of the United States. She says, Didn't Diesel throw himself out of the window of his stateroom? Commit suicide by drowning himself in an ocean voyage? Maybe I ought to do that. But here there was no ocean. But there was always a way, like this in Shakespeare, a pin stuck through one's shirt front, a goodbye f- frink. The girl who had no need marauding homeless from the desert walks upright in consciousness of the many pinch possibilities in the grizzled salvanating adversary. Death instead by, say, sniffling car exhaust in highway town perhaps through a long, hollow straw. Learned that, she thought, from Japanese. imbibed placid attitude towards morta- mor- mor- mortality along with the monkey-making judo. How to kill, how to die, yin and yang. And that's behind now. This is Protestant land. and quote. So she, she learns this kind of fatalism and this kind of the Japanese kind of focus on the, the, the temporary nature of life. So she does discuss the Japanese occupation with another woman who was working at the gym, uh, a Mrs. Davis. She's not really an important character. Uh, and then after her shower, she goes to dinner at a nearby diner, kind of a truck stop diner. And, and this gives her a chance to talk to various truck drivers going through. She discusses to these men who who are kind of like a, a population that that knows the world and knows how bad things are out east, knows how bad things are out west, but kind of want to move around, find a want to find, want to find a place where they can be stable and have a a decent life. And she suggests some of the places that they can go to. But what we realize is that it's really difficult for people to go anywhere. Everyone is sort of trapped in this duly occupied America and Colorado is one of those places that's technically in the Japanese sphere but it's kind of on the frontier so this is the new frontier in the man on the high castle is Colorado kind of away from both sides even though it's still on earth and we're going to get to Juliana's opinion on the stellar frontier which I think is an important shift in Dick's perspective on the frontier but we start with this kind of frontier question of, of where to go and here's what Juliana says you can live in Denver it's nicer up there I know you East Americans she thought you like the big time, driven of your big schemes. This is just how it sticks to you, the Rockies. No, nothing has happened here since before the war. Retired old people, farmers, the stupid slow poor, and all the smart boys who have flocked east to New York crossed the border illegally or legally, illegally or legally, because she thought that's where the money is, the big industrial money, the expansion. German investment has done a lot. It didn't take long for them to build up the U.S. back again. The fry cook said in a hoarse angry voice, Buddy, I'm not a Jew lover, but I see some of those Jew refugees fleeing your U.S. in 49 and you can have your U.S., If it's a lot of building back there and a lot of loose, easy money, it's because they stole it from the Jews when they kicked them out of New York. The goddamn Nazi Nuremberg Law. I lived in Boston when I was a kid. I got no special use for the Jews. But I never thought I'd see a Nazi racial law get passed here in the U.S., even if we did lose the war. I'm surprised you ain't in the United States forces getting ready to invade some little South American republic as a front for the Germans. End quote. Now, the point of this banter, this back and forth, is partially that... There are many Americans who see the East Coast as a place to make money, to have a spring up in their life, even despite the fact that it's Nazi occupied. In fact, because of the Nazi occupation, it's been developed. And later on, there's going to be a reference to Albert Speer, who was, you know, Hitler's urban planner. He was the one who planned the Berlin of the future, and he was—he's being—he's set in in North America to help the development of it. But there's really nowhere for people who want to avoid Nazis or the Japanese to go. Now, what about the stellar frontier? This is, this is Dick's standard go-to answer in the 1950s. is If Earth isn't working for you, go to the frontier. And he told this in numerous, numerous stories. I've talked about it again and again in this podcast in various episodes. So what has happened to the stellar frontier? Well, to be blunt, it's been Nazified. So she's looking at this uh, truck driver... This young truck driver who she's thinking maybe of hooking up with, it seems. And Dick writes, she thought he and I could sign up for one of those colonizing rocket ships, but the Germans would disbar him because of his skin and me because of my dark hair. Those pale, skinny Nordic SS fairies and their training castles in Bavaria. This guy, Joe whatever, hasn't even got the right expression on his face. He should have had the cold, but somehow enthusiastic look as if he believed in nothing and yet somehow had absolute faith. Yes, that's how they are. They're not idealists like Joe and me. They're cynics with utter faith. It's a sort of brain defect, like a lobotomy. The maiming those German psychiatrists did as a poor substitute for psychotherapy. So what is she associating here? She's associating the frontier with this kind of banality, the lack of idealism. So that's the point. The The frontier push is in a context of, of really no Idealism or imagination or dreaming of new worlds—it's just to go forward for its own sake, right? I've—I just read Kim Stanley Robinson's novel *Aurora*, and in that novel, it's about a generation ship that has to go back to Earth. And when they go back to Earth, they learn that the ancestors who sent them out and the people still on Earth to that point are just expansionists for the sake—they just see it almost like the biological purpose of man to expand. It's—it's it's not really to You know, for rebirth, it's just kind of a mad expansionism, and that's kind of the feeling I get when I read how the front, the space frontier, is talked about in *The Man in the High Castle*. It's always presented here in very banal terms. So, through Juliana's monologue, we're also going to get a little bit of of background on German politics, what has happened since the war. Um, It seems Hitler had syphilis. Hitler lives, of course, he survives, but he's still alive. But he's like in a nut house or a some kind of sanitarium because he's gone insane from syphilis. And then Juliana makes the point that this is probably explains the Nazi politics. And she says the present day German Empire was a product of that brain, meaning Hitler's brain. The current ruler of Germany is a man named Herr Bormann. I don't know if that was a real Nazi, but he's listed here as the the current leader but he's dying he's old too so there's this is at the moment of a of a possible transition in in nazi germany and this will of course have big impacts on on world politics and then she just chit chats a little bit more with the people in the diner and eventually she she takes an italian who asks her for a ride home back to back to his hotel so we, next we jump to a Swedish man, Baines, who is meeting Togami, this Japanese um, leader of an occupation. And Togami's goal, and this was established in an earlier chapter, was to develop a plastics industry in the Pacific, which they don't have. And the Germans aren't giving it up. They they dominate the plastics industry, but the Swedes, who are independent, you know, have a, have a nice Plastic industry. So Turgami is interested in working with him to get that technology over. It's, it's interesting that plastics is mentioned as the industry because that is, of course, of a an industry of. I mean, plastic itself. The word means flexible and changeable, right? And you know, it can make anything. It's an ideal industry for for making false replicas and fake, cheap toys and things like that. The kind of stuff that Dick did not seem to like very much. Now. Baines is waiting to meet Togami for his meeting But first he has to deal with this young German officer Who, who talks to him And it's We get all kinds of references in this talk I mean on the one level it's, it's an arrogant young Nazi Officer or soldier Who thinks he's better than everyone else in the room And is completely Indoctrinated into Nazi ideology And so He's kind of just an odious annoying character But you know, we get again and again in this conversation examples of perception not meeting up with reality. For instance, the young German officer speaks immediately in German because he assumes Baines as a white man would speak German. And Baines says, I don't speak German, I'm Swedish. So again, we got like the perception that he's one of us is proved to be false. And then they talk about plastics. Plastics is, you know, industry about manufacturing things they discuss um what else do they discuss oh eventually baines announces you know he's very confident here because he announces to this officer that he's a jew he says you know basically i i'm faking not being a jew but deep down i'm a jew and he says you would not have known because i don't have any physical way appear jewish I've had my nose altered, my large, greasy pores made smaller, my skin chemically lightened, the shape of myself changed. In short, physically, I cannot be detected. I can and have walked in the highest circles of Nazi society, and no one will ever discover me. And and there are others of us, do you hear? We did not die. We still exist. We live on unseen. And the German officer threatens him with arrest and he just says you know there's nothing you can do about me i'm too powerful i'm too well connected and all that but that's another example of of perception not meeting the reality they also have a very fascinating conversation about art in in which again the the officer who's been completely indoctrinated assumes that baines will just agree with whatever he says about art and the german soldier's point of view is that art modern art is decadent and about sex and unrealistic and therefore bad right the the old nazi line about the decadent art and then baines just replies how much he likes modern art um, again kind of throwing him for a loop but he's not used to being challenged on these basic fundamental points of ideology and if you ever talk to someone who's very ideologically driven you know I, like i try talking to a chinese about taiwan right they might be the nicest person but sometimes they can be full totally irrational on an issue like taiwan because You know for whatever reason it the ideology gets in the way of of their clear thinking and their objectivity on that now baines is very frustrated with the german throughout this conversation and kind of irritated and disappointed that he doesn't have someone he can really meaningfully talk to overall baines concludes that 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 the germans have a very very weak empathetic and useless worldview and here's how he describes it and he, the context of him thinking about what the germans are actually about is again in the context of their plans and their projects whether it's space exploration or the genocide of africans or the draining of the mediterranean to make it a large farmland he says their lack of knowledge about others they're not being aware of what they do to others the destruction they have caused and are causing no he thought This isn't it. I don't. I don't know. I sense it, intuit it. But they're not purposely. They are purposely cruel, isn't it? That it. No, God. He thought. I can't find it. Make it clear. Do they ignore parts of reality? Yes, but it's more. It's in their plans. Yes, in their plans. The conquering of the planets. Something frenzied and demented, as was the conquering of Africa and before that Europe and Asia. Their view. It is cosmic. Not of a man here, a child there, but of an abstraction: race, land, volk, land, blut, er. Not of honorable men, but of er itself, honor. And the abstract is real, the actual, and the actual invisible to them. de gut, but not good men, this good man. It is their sense of space and time. They see through the here, the now, into the vast, black, deep beyond, the unchanging. And that is fatal to life, because eventually there will be no life. There was once only dust particles in space and the hot hydrogen gas, nothing more, and it will come back again. This is an interval. Ein Augenblick. The cosmic processes hurry on, crushing back life in a granite and methane and wheeled turns for all life it is all temporary and they these bad men respond to the granite the dust the longing of the inanimate and they want to aid nature so that's his overall criticism of nazi projects and and their ideology and especially this kind of projection into into the future And then finally he goes to meet Togami. And Togami, they have their pleasantries. And Togami gives Baines a Mickey Mouse watch in 1938. Now this apparently is what he got from that antique salesman Childen earlier. Now we know he prepared a very rare comic, like a first edition comic that he thought he would like. But instead he has his Mickey Mouse watch. So it seems that something went wrong with that, that negotiation. So that's chapter three. In chapter four... We go back to Francis Frank, Juliana's husband, and he goes to talk to his boss, uh, often referred to just WM as a WM corporation, but his name is Widener Matson, and he was just fired the previous day, or maybe it was the same day. And he goes back, really trying to see if he can get his job back, maybe kind of wink wink, get his job back. But when he's confronted on this, he just says, I'm here for my tools, nothing else. But in fact, he later admits to a former coworker that he is hoping to get his job back if he can. And then he runs into an old friend, a man named um, Ed McCarthy, and Ed McCarthy kind of praises him on his skills and and says, well, here's something you can do with your life if you're not going to work here anymore. Why don't you make jewelry? There's always a market for jewelry. He says, make custom pieces. And Frank... Now... What Wydom Madsen does is important. Now, did Madsen, what they make is fake antiques. They, they do other stuff too, but they're kind of under the hand of business is making fake antiques. And Frank wants to know this. So he very much knows that the market that Japanese want are old, even if it's fake old. If you can trick them to buy the fake old, that's good. Of course, they, they want the authentic antiques. So McCarthy is suggesting that people would want custom jewelry is a bit. Odd to him at first, and he's not quite convinced that this is a good plan. And then McCarthy, though, does say, though, you only need like a couple thousand bucks, you could set up a garage, start making stuff, and you could sell them for stores and things, and you know, make a market for yourself, and that's a chance for you to do something useful with your life. And at this point is where we learn that Wyda Matson's the corporation is involved mostly much of its un, its business its income comes from the making of fake forgeries of pre-war american artifacts quote these forgeries were cautiously but expertly fed into the wholesale art object market to join the genuine objects collected throughout the continent as in the stamp and coin stamp and coin business no one could possibly estimate the percentage of forgeries in circulation and no one especially the dealers and the collectors themselves wanted to right kind of like a counterfeiter you don't try to just sell one counterfeit right you put them into the market and therefore dilute the entire market now it he he justifies this a little bit working for them and he doesn't think that Matson is doing anything wrong he he mentions other speculative booms that took place in world history and in the past he even talks about like different types of paper money that there was boom and bust cycles for. And he thinks the antique market will undergo the same kind of boom and bust cycle. Someday people will find out that a significant portion of the antiques, maybe most, as fake. And then just stop buying that. and the market will crash and, and life will go on. That's what he thinks anyway. So he doesn't feel any guilt about helping sustain this industry. Now, interestingly, McCarthy... Uh, accuses Frank when he resists taking you know taking up this opportunity that Frank has internalized the Nazi view that Jews cannot be creative and can only exchange and uh, this kind of challenges Frank to maybe take the idea seriously and so he goes back home and what does he do but refer, you know he consults the the book of changes the I Ching, which he does for all major life decisions in his life and he gets the hexagram for peace and he kind of has now as always with these I Ching reports it's it's always up to interpretation right it's kind of like a tarot card or any kind of fortune telling where the, the answer will be ambiguous and can be read many different ways and so often it's more of a tool for thinking through problems in new ways rather than actual predictive and that's sort of how frink uses it so peace but he thinks it could be the opposite of peace because i think he got there through ying. so because it's yin yang right so he got to peace through ying. Drawing the ing, and he uses just doing the arrow stick method. So he thinks maybe it's the opposite piece, which is war, and then he starts to think like, am I going to cause World War three Is this my decision going to cause World War three And he kind of has this solipsistic fear that he himself can cause the end of the world. And we see this again in novels like Doctor Blood Money, in particular. But anyways, he f- he works this out in his head, and he finally decides to go ahead and start the shop. So then we move ahead to Childen, and Childen is back in his shop. He's very frustrated with Tagomi's meeting, the meeting he had with Tagomi, um, because he didn't buy what he wanted, and I guess he sold that cheap uh, Mickey Mouse watch or something. And, you know, he, he thinks his future is in, in big trouble because he kind of frustrated and, and offended Tagomi, who was a good customer of his. And at this point, a white man walks in, a professional man, he comes in and he wants to buy revolvers from the Civil War era uh, for a Japanese admiral. And he, he wants to buy like 10 of them or 20 of them. And the this, this sale is going to be like $20,000. So it's going to be a huge amount of money and children needs this job. So he says, well, I don't have them, but I can get them. But here's a couple I have. And the man looks at them right away. And by the way, the man claims he's from Admiral Harusha from the carrier Sayokuku. Soyo soikaku i'm not sure how it's pronounced but um that's where he says he's from and he shows them the guns and the man takes like one look at them and says these are fake and shows them how we, he can tell they're fake like the has something to do with the stain on the wood finish and all that so he immediately says you've been hoodwinked and he promises to keep a secret not to undermine children's business but he says i can't buy these and he walks out very very embarrassed and panicking because children you know realizes this could really criti- be critical blow to his business if word got out that he's selling fakes oh and one thing i can't believe i didn't mention this the, the man who comes in is is frank frank he is trying to discredit his boss wyden Matson, to undermine his business and is essentially going to be blackmailing his ex-boss for money in order to start his own business with ed mccarthy so that's that's an important subplot that's established here although you know, it's one of those things that you probably should notice the first time you read, but if you miss it, it's, you know, it's understandable. But by the end of the novel, it's clear that that this was um, Frank Frink doing this. So he immediately mails it to the university for testing, and he Gets the call from the university some point later, and they they confirm that it's fake. And to save face, Childen says, Well, I knew it was fake. I was just testing if you could tell, you know, if, you know, because I thought they were really good fakes. And he pays the fee, and, and so he realizes, yes, these guns he bought were fake. So he later learns, though, that the man who came in is fake. When he asks about that gen Admiral and the aircraft carrier that he is supposedly commanded this had been sunk during the war so it's sunk in 1945 so this thing doesn't this doesn't exist so who is this man who just threw a grenade into his business it's not that's not clear at this point and so he goes to call a supplier named man named or he doesn't call he actually goes to visit the, the office of his supplier a man named ray calvin and he's the one who procured the procured the rifle the, the pistols, the revolvers for him. So he wants to get his answers straight from Calvin. And that ends chapter 5. Chapter five, chapter 4, sorry. And then we come to chapter 5. This will be the last one I look at today, and it's a big one. It's a really important chapter in this book. And if you're reading up to this point, you're probably I don't know, if you're like me, you think, like, what's going on here? I mean, what is this story even trying to be about? Even if you've got a keen eye you notice that fakeness is a major theme throughout everything going on it's even as a novel of of, of false history it doesn't really engage that we don't get any background on why the nazis won we get kind of hints here and there of what the life is like but you know it seems a lot of what's going on seems very banal right the problems of an antique dealer or the problem of a guy who just lost his job it's a woman at a diner kind of flirting with the truck drivers it's uh, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. It's in chapter five that we start to see that there's bigger things going on here. So it's it's Wyman Matson, and he has gotten a call from Ray Calvin, who is this is basically the game of telephone. He's just heard from children complaining about the fake revolvers, and Ray Calvin calls Wyden Matson and say, "Why'd you give me such bad fakes?" And Wyden Matson says, "Well." what do you mean well, of course we're in the business of giving you fakes and he said i know they're fakes but why would you give me such bad fakes that could be so easily detected and you know and then he he basically gets a little bit of a threat from ray calvin and he tries to deflect that and anyways he goes on with his life and then he has a conversation with rita the woman in his office and this conversation is far-ranging and the first, really they have two major conversations. The first is about fakes in general, and the second is about a book. So the first, where am I, adding my notes here. Okay, yeah, so the first discussion they have is about fakeness, and, and see, because this is, this is the issue. You know, it doesn't matter that these guns were fake, and why Mattson's point of view is that it doesn't really matter that they're fake. And to prove it, he shows two Zippos exactly the same they look exactly the same and he says one of these was in roosevelt's pocket when he was assassinated and he was assassinated in 1933 or 34 in this timeline and the other was is a fake and how can you tell which is different and she looks at both and she can't tell which is different and he says well the proof is in the piece of paper like the, the proof uh, the verification documents right and then he shows eventually shows her the verification documents that prove that that zippo was indeed Franklin Roosevelt Zippo that he had in his pocket when he was assassinated. Now, I don't think we're supposed to necessarily believe this, I, because, of course, papers can be fake, too. So I think partially the point is that there's really no way of getting at, at reality through our senses, even through the verification of documents. It, it becomes kind of dubious. And he talks about this, this feeling that you have with an antique. It, he calls it the historicity. And he thinks this is a fake perception. He's like, here's the two Zippos. One's fake, one's real which one has the historicity? Which, I mean, which which one has that value of being the authentic, you know, antique? And if you can't know, it can't have that histor- historicity. The Japanese think it has that, but often they're being fooled because there's so many fakes in the market. In fact, it sounds like most of the antiques in the market, maybe all the antiques in the market are fakes, and the Japanese are just buying into this speculative market for the historicity, but it's a fake perception. It's like the fake old, uh, The example I I could have, this is kind of a banal one, but, you know, where I I currently live in Taiwan, there's a street called Old Street, Shengken Old Street, and a lot of towns in Taiwan have old streets. And the Old Street is a place for tourists to come to try the local cuisine, and here it's stinky tofu, it's very famous here, and then do some shopping and things, and on weekends it's always full packed with people and it looks old it really does look like an old street but it was of course made 15 years ago remodeled 15 years ago so it's new new old right but you still walk there and you kind of get this sense that yeah you're kind of in you know 19th century shenken but in reality you're in a completely modern commercial inven- environment and th- that's kind of what madsen's Widman, weidman madsen's getting at here with this concept of historicity and the falseness of it that it's, it's all just in our minds essentially and he concludes a Colt 44 is a Colt 44, nothing to do with board design, not when it was made. It has to do with, you know, and he doesn't really answer, but it, it has to do with, I guess, how it's perceived. And that's what matters, right? So all, up to this point in the novel, we've been experiencing all these false realities, right? And I think what Weidman Madsen is saying, and maybe this is what Dick is saying, is what matters is how it's perceived and how it's experienced and how it's interacted with. It doesn't matter what it really is. So, then they talk about this book, and the book is called *The Grasshopper Lies Heavy*. And why did Matson, is especially it's Rita recommends that Wyden and Matson read this book, *The Grasshopper Lies Heavy*. And this book was banned in the East Coast, but it's been pretty much throughout the United States. But there's more copies of it floating around the West because the Japanese aren't as serious about. Censorship or whatever and he thinks oh, that's just a love story because that's what girls read, but she says no no It's actually a, it's a it's a story about the second world war, but as if the allies won Now here it's interesting to read because you get the actual a little bit of the narrative of the real the quote-unquote real the The, the timeline we're presented as real in this book how you know how the war was won like Roosevelt was assassinated in 1933 or 34 a year into his presidency uh, kind of a loser replaced him and you know amid the war was lost in 1947 and all that but we're given an alternate timeline in the grasshopper Lies heavy in which the allies win now the important thing to mo- mention about this is it's not our timeline so the story in the grasshopper Lies heavy is not the world that we live in not our history there are many differences for instance the germans and japanese don't honor their alliance in the grasshopper lives heavy the british de- 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 defeat rommel in north africa and then meet up with the russians in the caucasus and they're the ones responsible for the victory at Stalingrad, not the not the russians and there's other changes in the narrative presented in the grasshopper lives heavy what's the same though is that what's the same is is that the allies win that war and that's what's subversive about about the book. And is very excited about this story and goes into a lot of detail about this because she's really excited about this story and it's all new new, new to her. Um, now, Wyden Madsen is a bit incredulous. He just doesn't think it's possible, especially when it's mentioned that Rommel was defeated by the British. He kind of laughs that off saying, Rommel could never have been defeated. And towards the end of their conversation, we learn that Albert Speer worked to rebuild the Eastern United States and... He says, you know, things are really good out east. Think of all the great stuff Spear did. And this at instantly says, no, it sucks. It, it was horrible. And we had another example of a woman seeing the world differently than a man and experiencing it different. So Weidman Matson, who hadn't been out east, it seems, just kind of looking at it from the outside, says, look at all he did to develop the the world or develop the east. And he says, and Rita says, I couldn't live in those work camps. Those dorms they have back east, a girlfriend of mine, she lived there. They censored her mail. She couldn't tell me about how she moved back out here again. They had to get up at 6.30 in the morning to band music. And then he replies, you'll get used to it. You just have clean quarters, adequate food, recreation, medical care provided. What do you want? Egg in your beer? And we, this is like Juliana when you compare it to like how children sees the Japanese occupation with Juliana, she focuses on the violence and how horrible it was and that it really was bad. And so two times early in this book, we have the woman suggesting the reality on their ground is worse. So is there a different perception of reality between men and women? And that, that kind of goes back to the subjectivity we explored in Eye in the Sky a little bit. So chapter five, the second half. So far, I think each chapter has been in two parts where they look at two different sets of characters. Uh, so the second half of chapter five looks at Togomi and his talk with Baines, And they don't really talk about business yet. We know they're on a, he's on a mission to talk about plastics and bringing the plastic industry to Japan and the Pacific. But mostly they're chit-chatting. They talk about the I Ching, and Togomi really praises the I Ching and what, stating what an important text it is and also talks about it as a living document because everyone because it kind of developed over time with commentary and thought and then of course everyone who uses it interprets it in new ways and then the question is you know does the bible do the same thing and the bible's kind of more got harder edges i guess is the point but the iching is kind of a living document they can change with its times and everything the main point though of this chapter is is to is telling baines that a third party will come to the discussions and we get his name Gotta find it. Yeah, his name is Shinjiro Yatabe, and they're gonna wait for him to come to be here at the talks. And he's basically doing this as a favor. This is a man who used to be rich, a, a rich businessman, but he fell in hard times, and he's living on a government pension. But that income is very little. So Togomi gives him these kind of consultant jobs for some extra income from time to time. But it's. But he can't really report that. He can't officially be there because the pension committee or the pension people will know that, and then dock his pension or whatever. So Tagomi is trying to do him a favor. But the implication is that he's not going to be very necessarily effective in the actual meeting. But this leads to a conversation then about the Nazi attitude towards the old, and Tagomi wants to know what Baines's views are on the overall Nazi attitude towards the old. I mean, the idea being that once you're a certain age, you're kind of useless. And then Togomi talks a little bit more about his time in China and and how when he was in China in the closing years of the war, the Nazis wanted the Japanese to kill all the Jews in China and he refused. And the Japanese government refused to send the Jews to be killed, saying it's kind of against our principle of humanitarianism. And there's a lot of hints throughout here that the Japanese occupation is just nicer and more than the Nazis and maybe that's always by contrast right because the Nazi rules presented here so horrifically you know genocide all over the world uh, ecological devastation mad urban planning for no purpose but anyways they they, they they talk about the Nazis this way and and Baines of course is not really pro-Nazi so the conversation goes fine uh, there's a funny little scene here too where one of Togomi's underlings tries to practice Swedish with Baines but botches the word so badly Baines doesn't understand what he's saying and it's really kind of embarrassing and you know that's another example of perception of reality being out of sync there and there's a few other details here but I think that's basically does it for chapters three four and five um, I, I think especially chapter five is really important for establishing some of the themes here and the and the setting we're in and especially by introducing this novel the grasshopper lies heavy which will play a major role in the second half of the novel. So anyways, that's my thoughts on chapters three, four, and five of The Man in the High Castle. I know I probably left out a lot and I'm misinterpreting a whole lot of things too. So if you have any questions or complaints or comments, please leave them below or send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com and I will try to get back to you and respond to your thoughts uh, on air if possible. So um, I guess that's it. I- I'll be back shortly with Part 3 of my review of The Man in the High Castle, where I'll look at chapters 6, 7, and 8. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. You, you, Till you, find you will find peace and if you